We come to, uh, to the passage once again, Isaiah 25. This morning we looked at death swallowed up. And this evening we come to the comfort and the joy that belongs to those who are in Christ because He has swallowed up death on their behalf. We like to imagine ourselves as uh, strong and independent. We're, we're Americans, especially the guys. You don't want to be emotional. We want to be stoic. We would like to be the picture of strength and resolution. Strong no matter what comes, no matter what storm may strike against us. We're strong in the midst. You know, nothing can, can touch us. We don't feel the hurt. Something like Simon and Garfunkel's song, I'm a rock, I'm an island. The rock feels no pain. The island never cries. We kind of wish we would be like that. Uh, Weeping and pain are for the weak. But for those who have loved and lost, for those who have gone through difficult trials, we know that There's a point at which we're just overwhelmed and it doesn't matter how we would like to view ourselves, we come to weeping. We come to sorrow. We have different limits. We have different places at which we might break down, but we come to a point at which we realize that we are creatures in a painful and fallen world. We realize this life is aptly called a veil of tears. So this evening we're looking, and and as I said this morning, this is kind of just an expanded conclusion uh, from the the morning message. We're coming back to Isaiah's magnificent prophecy of the time when death would be completely done away with. And he says almost in the same breath that there would be comfort. A time when the Lord God Himself would wipe tears away from all faces. The devourer would be devoured. The cause of our pain would be done away so completely that God would wipe away the tears Never for them to return. This morning as we spoke about the, uh, the comfort that we have in knowing death to be done away with, we talked about the, the comforts that we have uh, concerning that in this life. We know salvation now. We, we have the comforts of that now that Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, and that's our hope, but there's, there's still coming a time when, we'll then, when that promise of death being swallowed up for all time, it, it, that's still, there's a future completion to that in the resurrected body. Similarly, we have this promise of every tear wiped away 
and there, there is comfort now in this life, but the completion of that comfort comes similarly at a future time. But what we have here is the promise. So long ago, through the prophet Isaiah, God wanted His covenant people to know this and to have this promise to take with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He gives these things to us for our comfort. He gives us these promises that we can hold on to even through the tears. Perhaps we could summarize it in the words of Psalm 30. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Our first heading this evening, the sorrows of sin will be wiped away forever through the death of Christ. Sorrows of sin wiped away forever. Sin is the culprit here, is it not? Why is there death? Why is there pain? Why is there sickness? Why is there suffering? Why is there evil? Why is there loss? God made all things good. At the beginning, there was not death. There is its possibility in disobedience, but there was not death. God made all things good. It was through the fall that sin entered the world and through sin, death came into the world. Since that time, pain has been plentiful. Sin is the reason that work is hard, that life is short, that pain is plentiful. Without sin, there would be no wars, no oppressions, even no tornadoes and hurricanes. There would be no personal sins of lying, cheating, betrayal, all of these things that we inflict on one another, all of these things that we are ourselves sinned against by others. All of these things that cause weeping. The source is sin. Why do we cry when someone dies? It's tearing away of someone that we loved and that we knew. We talked about that this morning. There is great sorrow here. And it's not just a normal thing. We don't go to a funeral with the, the same uh, sort of uh, jaded lack of care as we would pass roadkill on the road, do we? No, these, those creatures, they're not made in God's image. They don't have that, the, the eternal life. They're, they're, they're not the same thing. And we go to, the, to a funeral and we mourn, we weep, we feel that loss. It's proper for us to do so. Now you see, it, it's, it's really, in various ways, self-inflicted pain. Whether it's inflicted through mankind and mankind's evil and the pain that comes more generally through 
mankind's fault in something like a war. Or, more personally, we inflict pain on ourselves through our own sins, through the way that we treat others. Sins that we give into, the lusts that we cherish. We talked about this this morning, so I won't labor this point. But it is through sin that we have pain, that we have tears. But this is what Jesus has delivered us from, is it not? He delivers us from our sins. We just sang about that from Psalm 103. And how does He do that? We spoke, again, we spoke about that this morning. How does Jesus deliver from sins? It's through His own tears. It's through His own suffering. It was through His own pain. Listen to this, how Hebrews puts it very well for our purposes here this evening. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 7, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who is able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. In order that we might be saved from our pain, He took pain upon Himself. In order that our tears might be wiped away, He Himself was given over to sorrow. He took all of our sins upon Himself. Isn't that the the message of the Gospel that Christ nailed our sins? That decree that was against us, as Paul says in Colossians 2, and nailed it to the cross. This morning I brought most of a uh, a selection from uh, Spurgeon. I want to complete it now. Uh, Again, uh, Selection based on, uh, as Spurgeon commenting on Jesus' words, it is finished. Spurgeon says this, When he said, it is finished, Jesus had totally destroyed the power of Satan, of sin, and of death. The champion accepted the challenge to do battle for our soul's redemption against all our foes. He met sin, horrible, terrible, All but omnipotent sin nailed him to the cross. But in that deed, Christ nailed sin also to the tree. There they both did hang together, sin and sin's destroyer. Sin destroyed Christ. And by that destruction, Christ destroyed sin. This is what He did on behalf of His people. And it is through that that we are able to have comfort. That is the cost for our tears to be wiped away. Listen to this from Revelation 7. We read earlier one uh, reference to Isaiah 25 from uh, Revelation 21. 
We'll come back to that in a moment. But this from Revelation 7. In verse 14, it says, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And there you see the sacrifice of Christ through which the people are saved. Those who are cleansed, those who are able to be holy and and stand in the presence of God are there because they've washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more. They neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their faces. So you see, many of the tears that are wiped away are because of sin. The tears, really every tear that is wiped away is due to sin in some way, but many of those sins are our own sins. Thomas Watson, uh, the Puritan, in his book on the Beatitudes, comments on Jesus' Beatitude Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he points to that primarily as grief over sin. The grief that that nailed Jesus to the cross. The grief that the sorrow, the tears that necessitated the death of Christ. The mourning of penitence. Jesus wipes away the tears that sent Him to the cross. The tears that are shed for offenses against God. Offenses that justly end in our destruction. The other night, on Wednesday night, we sang after a Wednesday evening Bible study, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, a beautiful, uh, more modern hymn. And uh, in the second line, it uh, it says this, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Is it it in your heart to weep over this reality? Does it grieve your heart to know what Jesus went through so that your tears might be wiped away? You deserve that place. It was your sins that necessitated his suffering. We could go through the list in our minds of all that we have done. The tears that we have caused others to shed. We have not loved our God as we ought. What about our neighbors? How have we loved our neighbors? 
is these tears that Jesus has paid for. He will wipe away forever. He wipes away the tears that, of, of sorrow, of, of trial, uh, the sorrows of trial and, and of loss. Those tears are wiped away forever as well through the death of Christ. Throughout Isaiah, there are enemies. There are grievous enemies. Many of the tears shed are because of the enemies who come and oppress, who attack the church, who attack Jerusalem. There are sieges. There is suffering. There is death perpetrated upon the people. As I said this morning, uh, really Zion is pictured as, as a mountain surrounded by enemies and, and by destruction, by death. Death, of course, is, we know is the great enemy, but there are, there are human enemies as well that cause much suffering. The picture that we're given in Revelation 21 is one of absolute peace. Heaven's gates need not be shut. There's no enemy to keep out. It's a place in which righteousness dwells, so there's no fear that it will be taken away. The first Adam destroyed, brought chaos into paradise. The last Adam has kept the law, has kept it perfectly. He's unchangeable. And so the perfection of paradise with the last Adam is assured. Here in Isaiah, we're given this picture of the tears being wiped away, of comfort being given, especially because death is no more. The threats are gone. The loss is gone. It's all taken away. No longer the loss of health. How many of you deal with health issues? How many are not here this evening because of health difficulties. The tears that we shed on behalf of others. All of that loss, all of that sorrow, the loss of we experience from shattered relationships. God gives us comfort. Not only we're, we, we know that this, is, uh, this will be completely fulfilled in heaven. We look ahead to that. Revelation 21 says that He will wipe away every tear from, from their faces. That, that there won't be any mourning, no crying, none of this anymore. There will not be any pain. Why? Because the former things have passed away. God says, behold, I am making all things new. So we know that there is a future promise. Right now we're walking through the veil of tears, but these promises are given for our comfort. 
There is comfort not just in eternity. It's not just, well, it's going to get better later on. And so just suffer now and look ahead to the future. Jesus will care about me later. No, he gives us promises. For example, we have the promise that difficulties of this life are not meaningless. Here's a great practical application of Reformed theology. God is sovereign. He's sovereign even over suffering. And he says of his people, their sufferings are not meaningless. That he has purpose in everything. There's nothing that happens to you without purpose. And what, what in, in Romans 8 does Paul hold out for us as the hope that, that there's, everything is, it works together for the good of those who love God? What does he hold out as the hope that we are loved by God and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ? What does he hold out for us? He holds out the sacrifice of Christ. God didn't spare his own son. He gave him completely over. How will he not with him freely give us all things? This is the assurance that we have in this life. That God loves you. He cares about you. Your tears are recorded. It's not meaningless. We just were singing from Psalm 103 and um, planning to finish that after we're done here with the sermon. A delightful psalm, a psalm for, for meditation, for, for you to fix your heart upon. We've been uh, this in uh, Wednesday evenings at Garth's Mill, we've uh, come to we've been going through the Psalms. We've come to Psalm 103, and I, I warned the people uh, I'm going to camp out here for a while. I, I normally we do one Psalm in an evening and then and move on, but Psalm 103, love of a father, the compassion of a father for his people. God treats us as his children. This is the love that God has for us. And He brings us to His Word, to His comforts. He tells us of His love. It is often through our sorrows, through our tears, through our pain that Christ is closest to us. That the Spirit comforts us most clearly. Hear this from Samuel Rutherford. I find in crosses Christ's carved work that He marked for, out for us. And that with crosses He figureth and portrayeth to us to His own image, cutting away pieces of our ill and corruption. And so He says, Lord, cut. Lord, carve. Lord, wound. Lord, do anything that may perfect the Father's image in us, make us meet for glory. He's often working in us through the tears, through the pains, to conform us 
to the image of Christ. See, these are, these are the sorts of things that we, we come to and we say, okay, God's not doing, just allowing us to suffer in a meaningless way. He is, in fact, sanctifying us. He is working in us by His Spirit. Sorrow turns our hearts towards Christ. Perhaps we are, when things are going very well and we're cheerful and joyful, it's difficult to set your mind on heavenly things. It's difficult to turn your heart toward Christ and then the tears begin to flow and the pain is felt most keenly and you hit your knees. Rutherford again, there is no sweeter fellowship with Christ than to bring our wounds and our sores to Him. Sorrows turn our hearts toward heaven. This morning we talked about heavenly mindedness, that Isaiah brings that to us. I mentioned Colossians 3, but I want to read it now. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Sufferings in this life turn us to Christ. Turn us Turn our hearts towards longing for heaven. Causes us to pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The comfort that that it speaks of here is really not very flattering towards us. We do like to try to be strong. We want to be have a have a have a our minds about us and not give in to uh, to emotions or to weakness. This is something of a, of a holy paradox in the Christian life. It's really not very flattering to us. We come as broken-hearted children to a father who needs to wipe away the tears. But you have this, this sort of holy paradox where we are called to be warriors in this life. We are called to do battle. We are called to equip ourselves for war. Our warfare is not just against flesh and blood. It's against all manner of spiritual things. It's a spiritual warfare. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 how we ought to be arming ourselves for the battle. We do battle against the flesh, against ourselves, the the remaining sin. We do battle against the world. We live contramundum against the world. We do battle with the devil. We're to guard ourselves as soldiers of the cross. And so there's, there's strength here. But when it comes to us as children of God, we are frail children of dust. Psalm 103 says He remembers our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And we go and we are, as, we are those who find shelter under the wings of the Almighty. Toward the enemy we are strong. When we come before our God, we come as those who need His comfort. 
who are weak before him. David was familiar with this. He embraced this. David, the blood-soaked warrior. You don't find men stronger than David. He wasn't afraid of battle. But before God, he came in humility and threw himself on God's strength. He says in Psalm 61, From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Even in in Psalm 131, it says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. You see, we come to God before God as those who are weak, as those who are children of dust, as those who are the weeping people. And we come to Him for comfort. This passage that that we have been looking at in Isaiah is a passage that doesn't just speak to sorrow, though. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's in the context of a joyful feast. He doesn't just wipe away the tears and then send us on our way. He brings us to joy and to feasting. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. Speaking of Mount Zion. Banquet of aged wine. Choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. There is joy for us. Not just an absence of of sorrow. We are brought to the feasting fellowship of joy for those who are in Christ. We could look at all of the various pictures that are given by food, by feasting. Christ himself is a feast for our souls, the bread of life, the water of life. We see it in the Lord's Supper, Christ set before us. There is food and fellowship. There are so many ways in which Scripture uses the meal to present to us a fullness of fellowship. This isn't just a meager meal. It's not just keeping us going, but instead feasting. And that is what we are being brought to. We have a, a feast, and again, there's, there's a reality now in this life But the fullness is yet to come. We have feasting with Christ. Again, the Lord's Supper, that is a place where we are brought to fellowship and to feast upon Christ and to have joy in Him. Our sins are forgiven. He has given Himself. He has risen. We come and remember Christ. We feast together as the people of God. Communion with Christ. Communion with one another. Because we are all one body. One bread in Christ. We have joy in this life. We have joy in knowing that there is unbreakable fellowship with God and with one another. Going back to Revelation 21, what does he say in verse 3? Behold the dwelling place 
of God is with man. This is covenant language. I will be their God. I, they will be my people. It takes you back to uh, the Eden, the fellowship that was unbroken by sin, the, the communion with God that Adam had there in the garden. It takes you something better. God dwelling with man and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There is joy for the children who are protected and kept by the One who comforted them in this life. Joy Unspeakable, unbreakable, eternal. It is a joy with a sure grounding. We have good reason to hope this. Other religions, they, they hold out different hopes. Oftentimes, it's, it's really when you boil it down, it's more of a don't worry, you'll be okay. Just do some good things. Don't worry, you'll be fine. We have a sure grounding not only for life but for joy because Jesus Christ has been given for us. Because the Father sent the Son for you and the Spirit applies that work that has been completed. Those who are in Christ are secure. The only one who could wipe away our tears has promised that He will wipe away our tears. The only one who could wipe away sin has promised that in Christ we are clean. We are holy to the Lord. We are children of God. So Isaiah says that they sing, Behold, this is our God in verse 9, for whom we have waited, that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. They have waited. Not not just watching the clock for God's salvation to come, but this is eager expectation. There's a river at the back of our property, the Blackwater River, and we're always... uh, my wife and I are always a bit concerned when there's a lot of rain because of the flooding and worried that maybe one of the children might wander down, one of the smaller ones might wander down when the river is overflowing its banks. But imagine the hopelessness and helplessness of a child caught in a flooded river where no one can hear their cries, no one can save them. Now imagine the eager expectation of being saved if that child were to see her father reaching down and grabbing her up into his arms. That's the sort of waiting that we have. It's the eager expectation, the the knowledge that this one who can save has promised salvation. It's not a a doubting, not not a hoping for Something that, that may not happen or might happen, but instead it's a sure thing. And so we rejoice as the people of God. He has saved us. The Father's arms are already around us. 
the psalmist says in Psalm 16, the psalm of Christ, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the, the joy of one who has been saved. It's a joy now with eager expectation of what is to come. This is an exclusive offer, though. And Isaiah soberingly uh, bookends this joyful passage with judgment. He brings us... At first, he had, there was rejoicing over those enemy cities that had been destroyed, but he brings us again to the foreigner, the outsider, the one who is not part of this joyful uh, uh, feast that is set on Mount Zion. He goes to a close neighbor, to Moab. That's why I wanted to sing Psalm 83. It speaks directly of Moab, the children of Lot. This is one of Lot's children uh, by his daughter. Moab was a next-door neighbor to Israel. They could have come to Mount Zion. There were, there were restrictions, I'm aware of that, but on them coming directly into the, into the temple. They could have come. Israel, that was, those were their cousins. And yet they remained in stubborn pride and stubborn rejection of the life that God offered, of the joy of the feast. And he gives this disgusting picture of Moab pressed down as straw into a manure pile. And then the picture of Moab trying to swim out of it hopelessly. I was reminded of a time in my youth that was part of my mother's homeschooling program was to lend her sons out to the Mennonite farmers. We were friends with some Mennonites and one of the uh, more terrifying jobs that I had working for the Mennonites, I was probably 12 years old, um, was a roofing repair that needed to be done over a, a manure pit. It was liquid manure, hog farm. It was horrible. The, the stench was amazing. But the, uh, uh, the, the roof, it was a fiberglass roof, uh, so fairly thin and flexible and I was warned to be very careful over that because if you fell through the roof, then the, the methane would quickly poison you, and, and so it's a good likelihood of death. And I, that, that really stuck in my mind. What a humiliating death that would be to say that in the end, that was, that was, that was his end, to die in a manure pile. And that's, that's the sort of shame that Isaiah sets upon those who reject God. They, they were there close to the church. But they continued in stubborn rebellion. Listen to Jesus' words from Luke 13. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. That's a picture that Revelation gives us as well. In Zion, in Jerusalem, there is joy and feasting. Blessed are those who are invited to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But outside, outside the city where God is wiping away the tears from every face, outside there is no end of tears. There is no end of sorrow. This is an exclusive offer. There is life in Zion alone. There is life through Christ alone. There is no other way to the Father but through Him. Those who refuse the one that God has sent, Emmanuel, those who refuse God with us will know no end of sorrow. How very different God's words are to those who are in Christ. Isaiah himself says this in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. Those who refuse such comforts will in the end deserve the sorrows that they bring upon themselves. Heed God's warning. Heed Isaiah's warning. Come to Christ. Look to Christ. Come to Christ by faith. There is grace and forgiveness in Him. So just to summarize some of the comforts that we saw in this passage in thinking about the sorrows just to bring a few of them back to mind. The Christian's sorrows in this life are never meaningless or without purpose. We know that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. That's because they have been purchased by Christ. Second, we are comforted in this life. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. We're comforted in this life. We look to the promises of God. He comforts us. And then, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, then we comfort others with the comfort wherewith we were comforted. He comforts us in this life. He speaks tenderly to us. He remembers our frame that we are dust. Third, Sorrows work heavenly-mindedness in us. This is a good thing. We're easily in love with this world. We enjoy the good blessings that God gives, but we often take that to a sinful degree. We love our family. And so we say, God, do not take my family, or I will not have any respect for you. No, we are often given to loving this world, to loving this life, If we use sorrow correctly, it takes away our love and we long for heaven. We put our minds, our hearts on the things above where Christ is, the one who is our life. And fourth, sorrow 
works Christ-likeness in us. We're prone to live with our eyes fixed on the ground, think little of heaven. And so when we go through loss, when we go through the pain, the sorrow, the tears, it seems hopeless to us. It seems as though it, it, it just it's needless, senseless pain that we're going through. But come to the Scriptures. See what God says about sorrow. See what God says about the origins of such sorrows. See what God says about those who are in Christ. Remove that hopelessness. Feeling overwhelmed when sorrows crash upon you like waves on the ocean shore. Bring your thoughts, bring your hearts to Christ. The One who has saved you. To God, the Father who has loved you and sent His only Son to Christ who went to His own suffering, to His own tears and cries so that your tears might be wiped away. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of His people will be taken away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Lord our God, we thank You for the love that You have shown us in Christ. We thank You for the love of Christ. We took Him to the cross. We thank You that You give this promise to us now that You will comfort all of our sorrows, that You will wipe tears away. Lord, help us to set our hearts on things above that through sorrow we might be sanctified, through sorrow you might work in us, we might be conformed to the image of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.